Welcome to the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast. I'm Cheryl McColgan, founder of Heal, Nourish, Grow. The website, this show, and our newsletter all focus on making the science of advanced nutrition and greater overall health accessible to everyone. Buckle up for our latest episode to get ideas, tools, and practical knowledge you can use to improve your health and move towards your perfect version of ultimate wellness. The Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast shares interviews with nutrition experts, health researchers, and everyday people that have changed their lifestyle and nutrition to support greater health. You'll learn how to implement lasting change and create new habits that support greater wellness and a happier, healthier life. Please visit HealNourishGrowPodcast.com for full show notes and links to our guests. Dr. Padilla is a practicing gastroenterologist and health coach passionate about helping women with their health, lifestyle, and mindset so that they can feel empowered, save time and money, and make more confident health decisions without the overwhelm. Her focus is on teaching the why, filtering out the noise, and focusing on the importance of small shifts to create the recipe to longevity. I just wanted to add that I had a very lovely conversation with Dr. Badia. There will be some of the things that she said in the interview that you will know from listening to this podcast or hearing my past content that I may not necessarily completely agree with, but that is okay because every time you do an interview, you talk to more people, it gives you more insight. It gives you more background. It gives you a new way to think of things. And so I would just encourage you, for example, a lot of people listening to this podcast will hear the thing about red meat and be worried about that. Like suddenly, okay, if we're doing keto, for example, and we're eating more red meat, is this something we need to be worried about? And I will just say, as always, do your own research. It often depends on what your goals are. So for example, if for a short amount of time, if you are severely overweight, diabetic, whatever, you have other severe health issues weighing on you, it may be a time where you practice keto, maybe you are meeting, eating more red meat for a time period. Does that mean that you always will? Maybe, maybe not. It also depends on what is the new science. And most of the science or I shouldn't say science, most of the existing research around a link, a possible link between red meat and cancer, for example, or red meat and colon uh, issues is more epidemiological in nature. And again, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that we always want to be careful with epidemiology because it is fraught with problems. Is there an association? Maybe yes, but that could be from any number of things. It could be from healthy user bias or unhealthy user bias. And if you don't know what those are, it's basically saying, for example, let's say there is a link, for example, between colon cancer and red meat. Well, it could be that these people that eat more red meat in the past, uh, before, you know, you've been involved in this health space and, and people changing paradigms, but you know, red meat was villainized for years and years and years. And so it might be that people that ignored that advice generally ignore other health advice as well and don't have other healthy behaviors. So that's not the best description I've ever given given of unhealthy user bias, but there's also healthy user bias, which is like, Hey, people that eat a whole lot of vegetables and fruits. Again, this is what we've been told for years is the important thing to do for health. And so those people tend to be concerned with more health practices overall. So hopefully that makes sense. It's not saying that either one is right or wrong. There have been no good randomized controlled trials on any specific diet for an extended amount of time about the best 
research that we have in regards to diet is not the thing that we're being told the food pyramid or the my plate or any of the things that the U.S. health recommendations are around. It's actually around the Mediterranean diet. Uh, she also said some things about that, uh, which if you've looked into the blue zones, a lot of people are talking about this now and talking about some of the nuances in the new, in the blue zones. It's not only what they're eating. There's a quite a variety of dietary practices within the blue zones. And so it's nearly impossible to tease out if it's a dietary factor or if it's the other major factor that we talked about in this interview, which is the importance of community, the importance of movement. Um, so who's to say that those practices aren't what really is the important factor in the blue zones, because there is not a whole lot of consistency in their diet. I think the main takeaway from this that we definitely agreed on was eat whole foods, avoid processed foods. And for processed foods, that means meat too. So eating whole pieces of meat or, or meat that's been ground with one ingredient is far better than eating processed meats, eating meats that have a lot of preservatives added to them, like deli meats or salamis, that kind of thing. Again, I'm not saying don't eat that. No big studies on if these are directly correlated, but it could be those extra additive ingredients that are the problem. So I think the real takeaway is as always eat whole foods. And I think that Dr. Badia has a lot of great information, great paradigms in her, what she said today and on her website. I think anybody that helps people with their health and lifestyle and any doctor in particular that is actually focused on a lifestyle is definitely in line with what we do here at the podcast. So Sorry for the little extra information here, but I did just want to say, you know, anytime that somebody comes on the podcast, I'm open to all sorts of health paradigms. You never know where you're going to get the best new nugget of information. So just because there are a couple of things in this particular interview that may not align totally with what we practice on the Heal, Nourish, Grow paradigm, it doesn't mean that it's not valuable information and it doesn't mean that you won't learn something. And so I always think it's a Oh, so important to keep, keep an open mind and to be willing to listen to other people that might not have views that are exactly the same as yours, because that's really how you learn. If everybody is in an echo chamber and you're only hearing the same things over and over and over again, uh, then you're probably not going to learn as much. So anyway, with all that in mind, I hope that you enjoy this interview with Dr. Badia. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast. Today I have Dr. Padilla, who is a gastroenterologist and she is passionate about all things health and wellness. And we had a great little chat before we started recording today. And I think you are really going to love what she has to say because her kind of um, paradigm is very in line with what we do here at Heal, Nourish, Grow. So anyway, welcome Dr. Padilla. Uh, I read your bio for everyone, but maybe you could share a little bit about your background, how you got, I mean, obviously you're a doctor, so that's, that's one whole thing, but any personal health, uh, things that led you into the field that you're participating in now and, and welcome again. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I, um, have always been passionate about health and wellness just, um, and it really, it started with nutrition. I was just like an athlete growing up and, and then it just stemmed from there, but really I've, set an intention over the last few years, mostly because now I'm a mom and have two young girls. And my husband is a former NFL player, and he had been diagnosed with neurocognitive deficits because of um, concussions. And mm -hmm. so these sort of like rude awakenings of kind of 
the fragility of life. And, um, and we started being much more conscious uh, in the way we live our lives. So that meant being really mindful about the foods that we were intaking and how we were doing it and living our day-to-day lives. And so just learning that out of necessity for my personal family and health then has translated that into like my patients. And I do that for my patients that I see because I do still practice. Um, and then now that led me to kind of the passion of coaching people. So now I do a lot of health coaching and, and just making um, the knowledge that I've gained with that uh, available to them. That's wonderful. And I think it's something that, you know, a lot of physicians, obviously the way that our healthcare system is designed these days and working with insurance companies, you don't always have the time when you're working within that paradigm to help people in the way that you could. Uh, so I think it's really pretty cool that you're like kind of going into a health coaching thing. Additionally, uh, how, how does that look for you with, I, I assume that might be outside of the insurance model, but maybe you could share with people a little bit how you work with people and, and how that has evolved since you first became a practicing physician. Sure. It is outside of the health insurance realm. And um, it'd be nice if maybe insurance companies would value preventative care more (laughs) and more lifestyle modification. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know the concept of food of medicine is, is medicine is like very foreign to insurance companies, but um, you know, I, it really has evolved into like a beautiful thing, really. And like I said, it was, it kind of stemmed from just like my personal experience. And now I just have found myself just kind of one-on-one, like doing coaching with folks. Um, and it's been any range of, of people that are just wanting to just get reassurance that nothing big, bad or scary is going on and that they're doing the right thing. I, and I think what I found is that I end up being almost like the bridge to those people that actually do see a gastroenterologist in their day-to-day lives for whatever medical condition. I end up almost being like their advocate, like their sidekick, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, you know, the, their clinic visits are usually really short, like 15, 20 minutes long. And so then when they leave a doctor's office, they usually have all these unanswered questions or uncertainties. And then they go on Google trying to find the answers on Google. And what I have found is that by coaching, I have bridged that gap, that missing piece, which is like answering all those unanswered questions and spending the dedicated time that we can't do in clinic because we aren't allowed to really. And there's so much oversight by bureaucracy and insurance and, you know, the administrators by telling us that we can, can't see patients for very long. And so unfortunately, yeah, like a lot of, I think people that are in the healthcare space um, have branched out into health coaching as a way to, to offer more services and access to patients. Unfortunately, I think you bring up a good point with the insurance thing. Unfortunately, it's just not always covered by insurance or it isn't, and it's just out of pocket. So the people that are able and willing to pay are the ones that get access to that sort of information. On the flip side, um, you know, social media is free. And so there is some really good resources online too, um, that people are out there in the space doing really good work, educating patients on things that, um, that they need to know, which has been really awesome. I think there's been a lot of shifts online and on social media too, for, for people in the health industry. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's great that you're taking advantage of that. I, I think that you, we, you said in our pre-chat too, that you're kind of more focused on that now and, and sharing 
this information in a way that is accessible to people for free, which I think is absolutely amazing. And it does help whether people want to, you know, sometimes it's like, I've often said that, you know, I wish I would have finished and gotten the letters behind my name because then it does automatically give you more credibility, even though there's still plenty of good sources out there for people that don't have the letters behind their name. But I really appreciate that you've like kind of taken this on yourself because not only do you have the credentials, but you now have, you know, this additional platform to share your wealth of knowledge. So I appreciate that. And I'm glad that you're sharing you. that more now, like on social media. Um, before we go into more about your sort of practice and everything. So you're a traditional gastroenterologist. And I know one of the things that you really like to educate people on is more about gut health and kind of dispelling some myths. So I will say there's definitely a lot of conflicting information online. Like we're just starting to really get into the microbiome and, and starting to understand what that means. Uh, but it's still kind of in its infancy, I think. So maybe you could uh, share some color around, you know, what you encourage people to do as a gastroenterologist that is based in science and that does have some meaningful background instead of just sort of these myths floating around out there, like take a or probiotic, not an antibiotic. That would actually yeah. be bad for your gut health. You want to avoid yeah. antibiotics. And I think that's not a yeah. myth, but anyway, some right. color for yeah. that, for the folks out there listening. If you've been around my content for a while, you know that one of my favorite things is making and eating gourmet food and pairing it with wine. You might think you can't enjoy wine though while trying to lose weight or stay in ketosis. And if you're drinking traditional wine, you might be right. So many wines are mass produced and full of sugar and other garbage additives that can wreak havoc on your health goals and just make you feel bad. Fortunately, I discovered Dry Farm Wines. I've been drinking their wine for years now and I love this company. They individually test small batch wines produced by vintners that are committed to the practice of dry farm production. Some of my favorites have been the Blaufrankisch variety from Austria and all of the wines from the Loire Valley in France. Dry farm wines are free from excess sulfites and mold that can cause adverse reactions and hangovers. With no added sugar, each wine is tested to be under one gram of sugar in the entire bottle. Yep, you just heard that right. There's less than one carb in the whole bottle of wine. They're also slightly lower alcohol, which means you can enjoy a delicious wine pairing at dinner any given night and not end up with a hangover. You can receive an extra bottle for just a penny with your first order by visiting dryfarmwines.com slash heal nourish grow. I'd love to hear what your favorite wine is after you try it and be sure to tag me on social with pictures of your wine and delicious dinners. Again, that bottle of wine for a penny is at dryfarmwines.com slash heal nourish grow. Yeah. You know, gosh, it's so overwhelming and I totally get it. Even me just looking, going to a grocery store and looking at the health aisle and just the sense of overwhelm and panic and almost like fear that you're going to pick the wrong drug or wrong supplement. Um, but yeah, there, there is so much information overwhelm, I think that people are experiencing. And so I totally get it. But I think the key to keep things really into perspective is that um, it's so much simpler to achieve really great health than people think. And I think the people that are getting sold a lot of supplements and like this, this one magic pill that's going to change their life and maybe be the cure and all be all for certain things is oftentimes not true. Like you want to be just very suspicious of that when people tell you that this one thing is going to help. And I think if you can just view things online and with that sort of lens, just recognizing that 
may not be necessarily true, then you're on the right track. Um, always question. And, and I will be honest with you, and I hate to say this, is that there's people, even gastroenterologists that are spreading sometimes maybe not accurate information. Because if we're really trying to stay in the science, I'll tell you, I'll just give you a couple quick examples. Like one is like that gluten is unhealthy. Um, that's maybe one myth that's out there and maybe misconception. And I think it's misunderstood. I think it's kind of villainized and, and in certain, and you'll see a lot of very well-respected physicians and practitioners are saying that it's, you know, the thing to avoid and the cause of all of your problems. And when in fact, there's not literature really to support that, I will say there are conditions that being gluten-free is very reasonable and very much may help impact, you know, symptoms. Um, and that is like, if you have celiac disease, so an actual autoimmune condition that can affect um, your whole body really after you eat gluten, which is a protein that's found in, um, you know, different food products, like think of breads and pastas and pizza. And so that that protein is the protein that kind of makes things kind of malleable. So like you think of the pizza man, like throwing the pizza in the air and able to kind of keep the dough together, that gluten protein is what keeps it together. Well, when patients with celiac disease have gluten, it causes all this inflammation throughout their body. So those are really the only patients that should be gluten-free totally. Now, there are other people that have autoimmune conditions where their immune system is kind of wrapped up that may value from being gluten-free. Um, and even people that have irritable bowel syndrome, which many, many people do have, may have a lot of value in being gluten-free because um, sometimes that can be a trigger. Now, oftentimes what we're finding is that gluten-free means also like avoiding processed foods. So is it sometimes, is it the processed foods avoidance that, that's actually helping you with your symptoms or is it really the gluten that's causing the symptoms? And that's always a question I think to always kind of explore and talking to a dietitian is really awesome and a really great place to start. And like an actual registered dietitian, not necessarily like a nutritionist or health coach, just because a dietitian can sometimes help differentiate that stuff. Um, and so that's kind of one thing that I think that's out there on media that gets a lot of confusion and a lot of misinformation and it's, it's really hard to navigate. But there is a role for certain patients to be gluten-free, just not everybody. And it's not the villain, the big bad thing that I think is characterized a lot of the time. Um, probably the second thing I would say is colon cleanses. As a gastroenterologist, when I hear <laughs> that you need a colon cleanse for your health is not exactly true, or it's not true. Um, you know, because your colon or your large intestine is really a naturally cleansing organ, right? Like when you poop, like you're pooping out all the stuff that your body didn't need. And so, you know, the key is really making sure that you actually have regular good bowel movements. So, you know, when you poop, you're doing it regularly and in between your bowel movements, you feel great. Now, if you're not feeling so good in between bowel movements, then there's issues that need to be addressed. And whether it's you're actually constipated or, you know, you're not eating enough fiber, you know, Americans are really actually really fiber deficient or fiber starved. And, um, so a lot of times the answer is, um, if you have more fiber in your intake, fiber intake in your diet and you're doing things to have more regular bowel movements, you'll feel better, but everyone knows like when you have a good bowel movement like that just feels great. So I get how like cleansing that can feel like you need a colon cleanse, but in reality don't need it for health. Um, 
uh, you know, you just have to kind of wonder, well, why are you thinking you need the colon cleanse? Is it because you're actually not having good bowel movements on a regular basis? Um, that kind of thing. It's really a, a, a market for people to uh, spend money on something like getting a colon cleanse or colonic. Uh, there are reports of people having like issues and complications from those sort of procedures, like doing, um, there's, you know, perforations or injury to your colon can happen when you're sticking a tube up your bottom um, with someone that's not exactly trained to do that. And then um, people do like coffee enemas and these other things that you can do to facilitate like the cleanse, so to speak. <laughs> so um, I would say those are like the top two things that really can drive a gastroenterologist crazy when we hear that. <laughs> but I get it. Like, I get it. Like it's, you just, you think that you might need it. You think that colon cleanse is necessary, um, but it's just not. And the same thing with gluten. Gluten's not the villain that it's really painted out to be for most people. Yeah. I think for the people that is a problem, it's obviously a huge problem and can be very yeah. detrimental, but it's, it's not necessarily now people in my space, because you probably had seen this on the website. We're very focused on like low carb nutrition. And I think what you said is very accurate. It's not so much that it's the gluten itself, but it's like, because it generally comes in very highly processed foods and that can be a big thing. And, and that's actually where I often tell people to start. It's like, well, even if you never want to go lo low carb, just eat real food and you'll be like 90% of the way there. Um, so since you brought up the colon cleanse and we're on the subject, we might as well stay yeah. on that for a moment. Sure. Uh, because I've learned a few things lately about this. And that is, and for people that aren't aware of this, number one, that they're now recommending that the age that you have your first colonoscopy is now 45 rather than 50. And they are starting to, unfortunately, and I actually um, know someone that's going through this right now, a very young person who has colon cancer. Uh, so can you maybe speak a little bit to number one, what's the, the importance of doing this procedure at a younger age now? And number two, if you have any ideas or if you've read anything in the literature about why we may be seeing this particular type of cancer at younger ages now. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. We'd also love it if you could post a review on iTunes. It helps us so much by allowing others to more easily find us. The Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast wouldn't be possible without listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, that's. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I'm finding people still aren't aware that we made, made, made those recent changes from age 50 to 45. And, um, yeah, so really anyone, everyone needs to get their colonoscopy starting at age 45 at this point. And, um, and the reason is because we're seeing an increasing rate of colon cancers in younger patients. And what's unfortunate is when we're actually finding things, sometimes they're more advanced. And so, so really colon, colonoscopies are so incredibly important. There's very few things in medicine that we can do where we can actually catch a cancer early if we can do the procedure, right? So the only things that we really have in our arsenals these days is doing like pap smears and mammograms. And like colonoscopies is one of those things where we can do something and potentially catch something early. And sometimes colon, colon cancer can actually begin as something called like a colon polyp. And it can begin as like a little mini tissue growth or a little mini mushroom or tree that grows in the colon. And when we see it, we remove it because some polyps are considered precancerous. 
And there's really no substitute for colonoscopy, to be honest. Um, there's other options that we can offer people um, if they are, you know, for some reason can't do a colonoscopy or whatnot, but a colonoscopy is really where it's at. Like that's the only way we can get the most accurate information and really do the best exam because it's really considered a preventative exam if we can catch you early. Now, the age of 45 is for routine screening, meaning like if you don't have symptoms of like bleeding or, you know, abdominal pain or diarrhea or something that could maybe, you know, raise our alarms. Now, if we're doing a colonoscopy because you're having bleeding, that's a completely kind of different reason to do a colonoscopy. We may do it at age 30 for if you have bleeding in your stool. Like as a gastroenterologist, we, these days, we have very low threshold, meaning like we're very eager to do a colonoscopy on someone that's young saying that they're having bleeding. We do not just chalk it up to hemorrhoids um, these mm -hmm. days. And, and again, it's because of this rise in colon cancer. And we don't know exactly why. There are thoughts that it's certainly for multiple reasons, um, which can include the processed foods that we're eating, which has mm -hmm. been found to kind of increase that risk and exposure um, to tobacco and other toxins. And just like environmental exposures has been very big and the processed foods and the red meats and these sort of preservatives that we've been seeing like nitrates and nitrites and um, those sort of things that are put in our processed meats. Um, so when I think of processed meats, I'm thinking like deli meats or um, hot dog meat. Um, and some of the fast food sort of uh, processing that they do and some of these meat patties that you just don't really know, what does it even look like meat kind of stuff. Um, and, and so we don't exactly know the reason. It's a very alarming thing that we're finding and uh, very important. The one thing I want people to remember too is that we always think about, well, my family doesn't have a risk factor, a, a family history of colon cancer, so I'm not at risk. One thing to keep in mind is that if you have a family history of colon polyps alone, it might even increase your risk of colon cancer. And so it's important to ask your family members, like your parents or your, your siblings, hey, did you have a colonoscopy? If so, like, well, what did they find? What kind of polyp? How big it was? Like, get that information. Just get those records and take it to your doctor and ask them, like, are they at risk? You know, should they get a colonoscopy and consider it to be early? Because it's not just the colon cancer family history that's important, but even colon polyps. And the polyp part is something that's uh, and not as well known and recognized as a risk factor to potentially do a colonoscopy earlier than age 45. So that's important and um, something to recognize. No, I'm really glad that you brought that up because to me, that makes perfect sense just based on my family. There's a lot of cancer in my family, unfortunately, and colon is not one to this point, but I do remember my dad who had other kinds of cancers. He would always be really uh, funny about like giving us the health update, right? So definitely in relation to his cancer, but also like, Hey, I went and got a colonoscopy. And that is one thing for years. He always said, well, I went and got a colonoscopy, had some polyps, they removed them, not cancerous, but would always tell us that. And so between it being time for me to have mine again, anyway, between my friend having now colon cancer and my dad's history of polyps, I just went and I'll, I might as well just share this now. I mean, sorry to like throw this in the middle of your interview here, but okay. I actually, I actually did have a polyp. Uh, they removed it. The doctor called me and not cancer, all benign, but he did say it is the type of polyp that if left 
had a significant chance of developing into cancer. So uh, just for whatever it's worth, also, it is not difficult. I mean, the prep is the worst part. I actually afterwards felt amazing, like woke up really quick, felt yeah. good and went, went about the rest of my day. So it's, I think people put it off for, I mean, yes, does it take a day out of your life to do it? Yes. But considering what the outcome could possibly be if you ignore symptoms or you don't get it done quickly, I would say it's, it's basically a non-event. Like, and, and if you wanted a colon cleanse, if you thought you needed one, then you're going to get it before you can yes. get a colonoscopy, right? Like people pay for this kind of stuff, right? Like people pay I know, cash. Right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. Oh. And you know, I love that you said that it was really like a non-event because I've never had someone tell me that their colonoscopy was worse than they expected. Like they always come <laughs> out of it saying that it was, oh, this was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Thank you. Like the prep was wor worse really. And I've, I've had that every yeah. single time. People always complain about the prep being the worst thing. And, um, you know, I, I get it. Like there's certain a lot, certainly a lot of barriers to getting the colonoscopy, but that's one of the things that our field is trying to educate people on the fact that it's just accessible. It's there. It's really not that bad. Um, and we can, we can just, if we can just do it, we can hopefully catch something early before it gets, become something. And, and that's, what's really important. Yeah. And potentially, and also just to underscore the importance of, and this has been happening all through the pandemic, right? That people put things off. And I was guilty of that too, because it was time for me to go. And I called and they wanted me to do a COVID test and all this stuff. And I was like, no, thanks. I'll just wait because, you know, it used to be 50 and I wasn't quite there yet. I'm going to be there in April, but I put it off. And had I had my friend not had this come up, quite honestly, I might've put it off another year or two. And meanwhile, I had this polyp in there that could turn into cancer. So just to not uh, make this like doom and gloom, but it's an easy thing and go do it. So let's move on from that. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk a little bit more. We were kind of starting to talk about some of the gut health stuff. So in your view, knowing what you know now, what you're seeing in the literature, what are some practical things aside from avoiding processed food, which is always a highlight of this podcast, but aside from that, are there supplements? Are there specific foods to be eating? Are there things that you can do to significantly improve your gut health? And then by extension, hopefully be improving, you know, the whole track of that stuff, uh, avoiding polyps, avoiding, you know, any possible future complications. What would your recommendations be to the extent that you're able? I know obviously you're a doctor and she's not giving medical advice. She's just sharing information. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, I think the one thing that's going to have the biggest impact on your health is avoiding not just processed foods, <laughs> but avoiding red <laughs> meats. <laughs> um, really avoiding red meat and processed meats. Um, like I said, those are kind of risk factors for colon cancer, but also for heart disease. Because when you really think about what's the number one thing that's, you know, killing Americans, it's heart disease. And so so if we want to think about, well, what's going to have the biggest impact on our health, it's that. Um, and so I would say avoiding red meats and, and processed meats as much as you can. And, and I get it. Like some people love their piece of steak, you know, and that's, and that, I'm not saying like you need to give that up, but it's maybe now being more mindful of, you know, getting high quality meat. 
You know how I like to talk about being just 1% better every day? Well, ButcherBox believes in better. For them, better means caring about animals and the planet, treating the planet with respect, and it means improving the lives of animals and the livelihoods of farmers. Their beef is grass-fed and grass-finished, chicken is free-range and organic, turkey is free-range, pork is humanely raised, and salmon and scallops are wild-caught. I've been using ButcherBox for a couple of years now, and it was a godsend having such high-quality meat delivered to my door during the pandemic. If you're interested in saving money and eating healthier, this is the perfect service for you. Even if you can get back to the grocery store now, the quality and health of ButcherBox meat is far superior to what's in the market. Plus, if you're a bacon lover, I have really good news. You can always get a great deal on your subscription by using my link, but starting June 12th until October 14th, new members can get free bacon for life. That's right. Every box will include a pack of uncured, unbelievably delicious bacon added to every box for the life of your membership. Check my show notes for the link or go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash H-N-G butcher box. So instead of going to Outback, maybe go to that fancier restaurant and, and make it a big event. Like I'm going to have my piece of steak. Um, and that's really because I get it. Food brings people joy and and especially, um, you know, certain sort of foods. And so that's what I would say is avoiding red meats and processed meats. And the second thing is being more mindful about plants intake, like eating more plants, like being more plant based and whole food plant based. So um, we know that kind of more Mediterranean style consumption of food. So like um, olives and olive oil and nuts and seeds and these whole grains are just really awesome for our overall wellness. Um, I like to mirror the kind of blue zone sort of concepts. I don't know if your audience would be familiar with that. I'm sure you've probably touched on it. And, um, and so it's just this really awesome, really observation of these people that have lived really long lives. And when you really think about it, we all just want to live like really long lives live them well with joy and not many health problems, right? And if we do the things that these people are doing, they, their concepts are really simple. Like they don't, they don't do anything very complicated, but they definitely eat a lot more whole grains and a lot more like um, veggies and fruits and vegetables. So more plant-based, they do eat meat, you know, interestingly, they eat kind of pork, but they eat very um, small portion sizes of meat. They eat more fish. Um, but they they partake in being out in nature and keeping their bodies moving and and um, have these sort of concepts of engaging with others and love and community. And so if we do these sort of concepts, then then we're on the right track. I just think it's just so much more simpler. They even drink wine. <laughs> so they so alcohol is still on the table, you know, so you can still drink your wine and have your piece of the steak. Um, but it's really just taking a step back and just being more big picture and less like, oh, I have to now just be on the keto diet. And that's not really the case. And um, it's just, it's just a lot simpler. So that would be my take home. Yeah. And since you mentioned the blue zones, I think one thing that's interesting when people really start diving into this. So first of all, we can't really rely on Ansel Keys very well because he kind of cherry picked his data, right? He only focused on seven countries and he really, um, you know, did not do proper scientific method on his analysis of that. But I think one of the things that comes through 
with the whole Mediterranean lifestyle, and you really touched on it, is the importance of community and movement. And I just wonder when you look at all the blue zones, because their their food stuff is not necessarily consistent. Like I think Okinawans are one of them, and they have a very high carb diet, a lot of rice, a lot of fish, because they're they're on the coast. And then you have parts of the Mediterranean, uh, for example, certain islands in Greece where they exist a lot on goat meat, not a lot of agriculture, because not every island is really suited to that. So there's this whole variety of lifestyles and people within these blue zones. The other ones are the, uh, the seventh day Adventists that are all vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. we have, so there's just like such a variety, but I think the commonality with all the blue zones is really this idea of community and movement. So mm -hmm. I don't know when we've run across some of this stuff, what do you think if you had to pick one thing out of all of that, what we've learned from the blue zones, is there one thing that stands out to you more than the rest? mindset really um and i and that's i think you you bring up very great points and it's it's really it's all the things right it's not just like one thing it's just all the things together and um it's really more mindset they engage in in things that are more grounding they have more mindful practices you know maybe they don't label things like i'm practicing mindfulness or i'm meditating right, right. but they 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 engage in and activities that basically have those sort of foundational practices. And I think to me, that's incredibly important. And I see that even in my practice now currently, like so many people that have, for example, like irritable bowel syndrome or other medical conditions, even cancers, they have sometimes incredibly better outcomes when they engage in activities that are more about their mindset and wellness and kind of how they approach um, their life. And, and a lot of it is really kind of more mindfulness and that actually meditation sort of principles, um, which is really incredible. And I don't think we know all the answers, but we don't know. And in something that's very much evolving, but it really is, you know, this whole mind gut connection, it's really real. And, and, and we don't know exactly necessarily which one came first, the chicken or the egg, but, um, but we recognize the value of, what's going on in here and which then translates to everything else in our body has a direct impact one way or the other. And it's a highway going back and forth. And, but mindset to me and, and, and how you have coping mechanisms in place to deal with things that happen in your life is incredibly important. And I think that trumps diet and a lot of things. Sometimes it really does. Yeah, I think that speaks to, I'm sure you've heard some of these stories occasionally when they'll interview somebody, a centenarian that's, you know, over a hundred years old and th there's no commonality there either. Like some of them will say, well, I ate two eggs every day and drank a glass of wine. And then some will say, I never ate an animal in my life. And some will say, you know, all variety of things. And I think the only thing that I've noticed commonly is, is that they, they wouldn't have, a, they seem to have this mindset because some, some of the interviews you read, you can just tell they're kind of like a very interesting kind of person. And then secondly, just that idea of community and it, the, the diet stuff, not to say that diet isn't important because I obviously think that it is, but, um, but it just, it speaks to the fact that I think mindset has to be a big part of what's underlying all of those things that allow people to have not only greater lifespan, but health span, you know, enjoying your life yeah. while you're doing it. 
Yeah, you know, I follow a lot of the work of um, Dr. Joe Dispenza too, and I know he's studying that. Um, I don't know really the data that he's he's getting, but I know that he's he's absolutely studying the power of your mind and meditation and how that impacts your health. And and so I'm going to be very interested in seeing what those results look like. But anecdotally, meaning like from just watching and people in his audience and people that participate in his events and read his books will say, you know, I meditate and I do all these practices and then, oh my gosh, my symptoms of whatever are gone or, oh my gosh, I'm now cured. And it just makes you question and wonder, you know, wow, the body is an incredibly powerful um, system. And, and, and I think we are just much more powerful than we think we are. And uh, <laughs> our minds are, are certainly more in control and we are in control of our minds, you know, like we, we have the power to make some change and impact. And so um, I think it's very interesting and um, it's, it's, it's awesome. I think it's kind of a cool place to be in science because it's changing. It's, you know, I know um, things have changed. I mean, we're not learning the little food pyramid. Oh, sorry, guys. We're not learning the food pyramid thing. Um, the food pyramid, like we learned in school. And, um, and so it's just all that knowledge that we learned when we were little kids, like needs to go out the window. And, you know, I think if there's going to come a place in, in, in like kids when they're learning nutrition and how to be really well in their lives, it's going to change. And we're going to probably have mindset somewhere way up there at the top instead of, I don't know, eat more dairy or drink more dairy. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see that someday. That would be amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Dr. Padilla, before we start to wrap up here, can you maybe share a little bit about how people can work with you? Is mindset part of that? How, how do you do the health coaching part? And, you know, where can people find you online if they want to follow you, learn more about what you're doing and kind of learn the principles that you're really passionate about? Where can they do that? Yeah. So um, they can find me on my website. It's labelisemd.com. So it's L E Y. B-E-L-I-S-M-D.com and the same thing for on Instagram. And uh, if someone was interested in coaching, they can certainly uh, message me on my website or on um, DM me on Instagram and we can kind of begin engage in that conversation from there. Um, or, you know, I have my newsletter too that I love to send out weekly and it's really just like short snippets of fun facts and health um, information. Like I just sent an email this past week on the most hydrating foods that we should be having this hot summer during the heat wave. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's great. I think that you also have a free ebook on your website. I was oh, just yeah. reviewing it before we got on. What, what is that about? Yeah. I, I can't remember. Yeah. So it's really, um, I don't remember the title now, gosh, but it was basically on how your gut can impact your, the skin, um, and oh. your skin quality. And, and I have a few supplement recommendations of ways to kind of optimize your skin health and how um, your gut health can directly affect your skin. So. Oh, I love that tie-in. You will have to, um, I'll have to send you the link from my previous guest. He's actually focused specifically on the skin microbiome and he had some interesting things to say about that. So you guys might have some uh, good oh, synergies so cool. there. <laughs> yeah, um, so awesome. again, 
Yes, thanks. Uh, Dr. Padilla, thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge today. I will put all of her links, obviously, in the show notes, like always. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on today as a guest. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. This has been the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast. Again, I'm Cheryl McColgan, founder of Heal, Nourish, Grow. You can find show notes for this episode at healnourishgrowpodcast.com. If you have feedback on today's episode or questions about the content, please email us at podcast at healnourishgrow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to sign up for our email list at healnourishgrow.com and subscribe to the show with your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. Join us next time for more information that helps you live your best and healthiest life. Thanks for listening. Content on the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast does not constitute medical advice. Content contained in the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast is not intended as medical diagnosis or treatment. Neither the company nor its owner, Heal, Nourish, Grow, LLC, nor any of the company's employees, agents, or guest speakers provide medical advice. The content provided on Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your medical provider with any questions about what health practices are right for you.